Good. Well, hey guys, my name is my name is Paul, and I'm one of the pastors here. And hi, Esther. And along with my much much better half, and definitely much prettier half, Bethany, we have the priv- privilege of pastoring the best kids ever here at Cedar Mill. So friends, though, as we're going to kind of need to turn a bit of a corner because the, the subject we're dealing with today, I, w- I want to acknowledge a, a few things. We're going to step into a very sacred and sensitive place for many of us as we engage the subject of suffering. And honestly, I'm not sure our family ever truly experienced suffering until God called us into foster care seven years ago. The trauma, abuse, and neglect impacted us far more than we ever anticipated. But nothing impacted our family more than when God intertwined our story many years ago with that of a little boy named Darian. Late one evening, we got a call from DHS asking us to come pick up a newborn baby boy. Darian had been removed from his mother's custody due to her history of exposing her children to very dangerous men. And Darian's biological father was no different. In fact, what we heard about his crimes against children were the worst we had ever heard of. As soon as we welcomed Darian, we were assured that Darian would never be returned to that circumstance. However, fast forward almost two years later, as we were walking through the adoption process with him, we got word that the state did not have enough evidence to take his case to trial and terminate parental rights. And the possibility of him being returned to his parents was now very likely. It was at this time, through prayer and counsel, we felt God was calling us to intervene legally on his behalf, either to prevent his return to that environment or to support a stronger plan for his safety. Our family, friends, and church family at the time began to pray for Darian. Our children loved him as their brother, as they have loved all of our foster children. And we shared as much as we thought appropriate with them. But in some, this process ended up costing us many, many hours in the courtroom, as well as every single dollar we had. Through a conflation of different circumstances, the court ruled that Darian was to be returned home immediately. And I remember getting a call from Bethany, and as she was crying, said, need to come home now. She said the caseworkers were there and were going to take Darian. When I arrived, the caseworkers were packing up Darian's belongings. It was at that moment I knew I had to tell my children what was happening And I will never forget that moment because it was the first time as a father within my own strength that I was not able to assure my children everything's going to be okay. All I could do was tell them something bad is happening, but Jesus would take care of us and take care of Darian. As Darian was leaving, I heard wailing from my children I never, ever want to hear again. 
And after he was gone, it began a season of suffering for our family we had never experienced before. Night after night, for months, I would lay next to my bed, crying out to God for Darian's safety and for God to comfort Bethany and my children. During those nights, at times, I would experience God's presence in ways I had never before. I was also drawn to the Psalms like many other believers before me who were walking through pain and suffering. One of the Psalms that helped me navigate that season of suffering is very dear to me, and that is Psalm 130. So today, would you please join me there in Psalm 130 by opening your Bibles or directing your attention to the screens. And today, as we look at Psalm 130, I want us to try and answer this question. How do we respond to suffering? But before we get going, would you just take a moment with me and pray? Father, you are mindful and present in the midst of our suffering. And they are sacred and special parts of our stories. Prepare our hearts, guide my words, as we seek to learn from the psalmist about how we respond to suffering. The psalmist who himself was very acquainted with suffering. Father, it is in you alone that we trust and we find our hope. Amen. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope. Oh Israel, oh sorry. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Friends, Psalm 130 is what is called a psalm of ascent. It is a psalm God's people would have sung together as they went up to Jerusalem for one of the for one of many celebrations including Passover. Or the priests would sing as they ascended the the steps of the temple. Psalm 130 is also one of seven psalms the church has considered penitential psalms. And while we do not know the occasion with certainty, the psalmist may be experiencing suffering as a result of his own sin. Psalm 130 is special, though, as it has many of the characteristics of a psalm of lament. And regardless of what brought about this experience of suffering, Psalm 130 helps us answer the question I would love for us to focus on today, which is again, how do we respond to suffering? Now we should probably stop right there and just clarify a couple things. First, for us in an extravagantly wealthy country like the United States, The idea of what is considered suffering biblically and historically has drifted quite a bit. And as such, we tend to respond to certain things like we are suffering, when in reality we really are not. 
So let me just give a couple of examples. And these examples may or may not have all come from my life, okay? (laughs) Certain people may react like they are suffering when their four-year-old son shoots Nerf gun bullets up the exhaust pipe of their car (laughs) for the second time in a month. But in reality, they aren't really suffering. Also, certain people may react like they are suffering when they have a six gigabyte data plan with AT&T and their kids use up all the data on day one and they have to live the next 29 days on 2G speeds, which feels like dial-up, by the way. But again, in reality, they are not really suffering. And some may react like they are suffering when they let Pastor Dave talk them into cliff jumping and they end up hitting the water rear end first. And they can't sit comfortably for the next 72 hours. But once again, discomfort, but not really suffering. In all honesty, friends, our understanding of what is considered suffering has drifted quite a bit. From anguish to almost now, what is simple inconvenience. Now, second, let's be mindful today. We are not looking to answer the question, how does Christianity respond to the problem of suffering? Meaning, how does Christianity deal with the reality of profound suffering in this world? No, the question we are aiming to answer today is, how do we respond to suffering? But I would just say this quickly about Christianity and the problem of suffering. Suffering is not a problem. Christianity seeks to avoid. Nor is it foreign to what it means to follow Jesus. Unlike a religion such as Buddhism, which seeks to deny the reality of suffering, throughout Scripture, the subject of suffering is addressed head on. In fact, Peter, James, Paul, and Jesus himself tell us, we will experience suffering. But friends, should we expect anything less? We have chosen to follow a king who stared down the cross and set aside his own agony to obey the Father's will and suffer the greatest of all sufferings to become sin for us so that we could be with him forever. And while some sin or some suffering is the result of natural consequences of sinful actions, let us not buy into the foolishness peddled by some that if we encounter suffering in this world as Christ followers, our faith is somehow defective. Suffering is something to be expected as a Christ follower, and each of us has or will encounter it. No, today I simply want to look at the question of what the psalmist shows us and teaches us about how we should respond to suffering when we encounter it. Now, Psalm 130 is made up of four sections, each containing two verses, which help us answer that question. And this morning, I would love it if we could just walk verse by verse through each of those sections. So let's go ahead and look at verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Right out of the gate, the psalmist is pleading and lamenting to the Lord, just crying out to God. He did not run to a friend first, and he did not go and post anything on Facebook. He simply cried out to his God. The message paraphrases verse 1 as, Help God, the bottom has fallen out of my life. Have you ever been there? 
The psalmist offers no pretense here of having his stuff together or even knowing what to do with his pain. For many of us in our culture, this level of vulnerability makes us very, very uncomfortable. Vulnerability before God or any type of vulnerability is terrifying because it is viewed as weakness. The appearance of strength and confidence is is what is admired in our culture. But sociologist and author Brene Brown pushes back on this notion and says, vulnerability is a birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. It is the source of hope, empathy, accountability, and authenticity. If we want greater clarity in our purpose or deeper, deeper, more meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path. She then says that the idea that vulnerability is weak and to be avoided is a dangerous myth. I would add that myth is especially dangerous for our relationship with God. The psalmist makes it clear that vulnerability is an essential piece of how we should engage suffering as his children. The psalmist is not fearful of being vulnerable and appearing broken. He is simply pleading with God. Now, one of the most powerful experiences I have ever had in church on a Sunday morning happened about 12 years ago. A family in our previous church had just lost their son days prior while he served in Iraq. That Sunday, the parents stood up and shared with our church family what had happened and what they were experiencing. The husband did the majority of the talking and, as you can imagine, just wept as he spoke. He shared his heartbreak as a father and all of his questions for God. He literally held nothing back. The room was completely silent. His words hit with a level of vulnerability and authenticity, much like the words we hear from the psalmist here. This father just laid bare his heart before his church family and his God. He said he was grateful for all those who had just come to sit and weep with them, but he also asked everyone to refrain from trying to give them the right biblical answers for a while. In fact, he said if he had one more Bible college student walk up to him and say... You know, Scripture says God has a purpose for you in this. He said he didn't know what he would do to them. He said he and his wife knew these answers, but just needed time and space to sit, plead, and cry out to God. Ironically, if you remember the story of Job, this is exactly where his friends actually did get it right at first. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, They came each from his own place. They made an appointment together to come show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. In the midst of that profound suffering in our lives years ago when Darian was removed from our, our family, I will never forget some of our dear friends showing up at our door late at night. They did not come to offer all the right theological answers, though I know for certain they had them. But instead they came with a willingness to sit and cry out to God with us. 
In fact, it was at that moment that our oldest daughter, Sydney, later told us she decided she wanted to be baptized. She says that it was at that night that Jesus became very real to her. Having God's people just sit and weep with, weep with us was a defining moment for her relationship with Jesus. Friends, we must avoid the temptation to move ourselves past crying out and pleading with God in the face of suffering or trying to move others past it because vulnerability is so uncomfortable. Be certain there is a time to point people to Christ and offer the right biblical answers. But it should not come at the exclusion of a creating space to weep with those who weep, as the Apostle Paul tells us to do. And Jesus himself demonstrated this response to suffering in others. In fact, this response accounts for the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Now during those months of pleading with God for Darian's safety, I had a moment of questioning whether I truly did trust God. I wondered why I couldn't just confidently and serenely trust God's plan. If I truly trusted him, would I be pleading and lamenting in this way? About that time, I watched Pastor Rick Warren sharing on Piers Morgan show, Piers Morgan show soon after his son had committed suicide. At one moment, Rick was reflecting on his experience of losing his son, and in the midst of that time, recognizing that lament and crying out to God was actually a form of worship. And this truth is affirmed throughout the Psalms. When we plead with God and cry out to him, we are running to him and essentially saying, Abba, which means Daddy, I have nothing and I am so broken. I need you and only you can rescue or comfort me. We recognize the reality that is true every day of our lives and is so easily forgotten in times of comfort that only God in his glory and strength can meet our needs. Now, I have a very independent three-year-old daughter named Mariah. And if you know Mo, you know that saying independent, independent, is a huge understatement. Most of Mo's days are filled with her saying this, no, me do it. She rarely wants help, but there is nothing as endearing as when she's scared and runs to me and cries out, Daddy, help me. For me, I would imagine this is just a faint, faint glimmer of what it means to the Father when we cry out to him as his children. The psalmist then moves from pleading and lament his worship to just straight up explicit worship. Now, just to clarify, this is not a linear response to suffering that the psalmist is laying out. Like, first you plead with God, and then you move to praise. No, these responses will intermix. But let's look at verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Here the psalmist moves to praying, praising God for who he is, remembering exactly where he's finding his hope and who he is trusting in. And without question, his understanding of God's character comes from God's own self-description in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Friends, as we mentioned, the psalmist is likely experiencing suffering as a consequence of sin in his own life. But for whatever reason we encounter suffering, the importance of stopping and praising God and remembering who he is cannot be overstated. Without looking to him, friends, we are simply left with our circumstances. Praising and worshiping our God moves our eyes from the horizontal to the vertical, from the problems and sufferings, suffering we are facing to our gracious and merciful King who remains on his throne and whose promises are true. And, we, and he will never leave or forsake us, regardless of the suffering we encounter in this life or why we encounter it. The psalmist then moves to pausing and waiting for the Lord. So let's look at verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. So let's laser in on verse 5 first. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. Here, friends, the psalmist is talking about being rooted in God's word. Friends, do not wait to be rooted in God's word until after suffering arrives. At that point, you may be incapacitated or even unable to function. And friends, the reality is that suffering will cause some to fall away. Jesus tells us as much in Mark 4. And it is because they are not rooted. Being rooted in God's word is what gives the psalmist hope in the midst of the suffering and waiting. Spend time in God's word. If you need accountability to be rooted in his word, join a Bible study. Join women, women of the word or Bible study fellowship. Or please attend one of Pastor Matt's classes. But just get rooted. Then in verse 6, the psalmist says, We wait like watchmen. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. Here it comes again. More than watchmen for the morning. In biblical times, the watchmen would wait on the walls of the city at night to keep lookout for attack. But they would not wait like we do for a friend who's going to meet us for coffee. Like looking at our watch and then leaving at a certain time if that friend doesn't show up. No, they knew the sun would come. They just didn't know how or when. So they waited. Professor and Pastor Andrew Wilson compares our waiting like watchmen to the waiting that emperor penguins do in the Antarctic. Yes, we are going to talk about penguins this morning. And kids, if you're in the crowd, maybe even watch a little video clip here of penguins. So pay attention. But every winter, the sun disappears for four whole months, meaning the night literally lasts for four months. The female penguins leave and then the male penguins huddle together with an egg on, on their feet of their offspring and then they keep it warm with their belly and they wait together for the sun to rise again four months from then. And before the, the video, moms, um, how good does a four-month mom's night out sound right now? <laughs> Let's go ahead and watch our video. 
Imagine our world without sun. Male emperor penguins are facing the nearest that exists on planet Earth, winter in Antarctica. It's continuously dark and temperatures drop to minus 70 degrees centigrade. stay when all other creatures have fled because each guards a treasure, a single egg resting on the top of its feet and kept warm beneath the downy bulge of its stomach. There is no food and no water for them and they will not see the sun again for four months. Surely no greater ordeal is faced by any animal. As the sun departs from the Antarctic, it lightens the skies in the far north. It's March, and light returns to the high Arctic, sweeping away four months of darkness. So I love that video for a couple reasons. One, it proves dads can stay home and do a great job of watching the kids for an extended period of time. And second, I love how the penguins wait. They do not know when the sun will rise again, but they know for a fact it will. In just the same way, we know the Lord will bring deliverance. We just don't know when. There are stories of deliverance and healing in this church, I have heard many of them. But friends, the reality is, waiting is hard. Sometimes the Lord brings deliverance, healing or rescue this side of the grave. But sometimes it happens on the other side of glory. Or it will only happen when Jesus returns and gives us a new body and a new earth. If that is you and you are waiting, your testimony will be that and the same as the Apostle Paul's. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Regardless though, we know deliverance is coming. When the cancer will be gone, the trafficking of children will be no more and relationships will no longer be broken. We know this time will come. We just don't know exactly when. So we wait like watchmen wait for the morning. Finally, friends, the psalmist then moves to proclaiming God's goodness and faithfulness. So let's read verses 7 and 8. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Friends, it is easy to proclaim God's goodness out of abundance. When you get a new house, a new car, you're in good health, and you lose a ton of weight and get six-pack abs again. But gang, it is so much more powerful 
to proclaim God's goodness and faithfulness to his promises in the midst of suffering. Dear friends, those of you who are walking through suffering right now and roll in here every Sunday, proclaiming the Father's love and goodness to you in spite of that suffering, do not think for one second that your faithful witness to God's goodness and love for you is lost on the rest of us. We are drawn into deeper worship just by having the privilege of worshiping with you. Your witness is also provocative to the outside world because they look at you and say, if you can proclaim the goodness of God in the midst of that suffering, oh, you must truly have an amazing God. I also want to stop and address one specific group of people this morning. Parents of children who are experiencing disability of some kind, oftentimes you are marginalized by friends and family who do not even realize they are marginalizing you, and even by us, your church family. For that we repent, but we see you. The witness of your faithful love and sacrifice draws our eyes to our servant and suffering King Jesus, and it causes us to worship. Thank you. Friends, sometimes on this side of glory, our witness is not that God took the cancer away or the memories of abuse. It may be that that you cried out to your father and he came running. Not with physical or emotional healing, but simply with himself and his presence. A year after that family I mentioned at our previous church who had lost their son in Iraq shared their lament and tears, our pastor invited them back to offer an update. The father once again spoke. He said that the pain of losing his boy had not lessened and that he still wrestled with questions. But then he shared a story. One evening, he walked out into his backyard with tears in his eyes to go and sit on the swings that his son had played on as a child. He said at that moment, he sensed God speaking to him as if God had come near and sat on the swing next to him. And he felt like God said to him only this, I know what it's like to lose a son and I am with you. Friends, there is nothing like our God's presence. When he shows up in the midst of our suffering, it is indescribable. It is why there are endless testimonies in scripture and from believers throughout history who are able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy, even in the midst of suffering and even if deliverance only happens on the other side of the grave. For me personally, I would never ask to return to that season of pain and suffering over our former foster son, Darian. The pain and the fear were palpable, and the nights were really, really long. But God showed up on many of those nights as I laid weeping. And for that reason alone, I am thankful for the season of suffering. And I am certain many of you in here today can offer that exact same testimony. Friends, in a moment, we're going to come to these tables and remember and celebrate. And we'll also have people available to pray on the side. And we remember and celebrate what our God has done for us by sending his son to rescue us from sin and death. Our king is not a distant king who is unable to empathize with the suffering you and I experience. 
but rather he took upon himself our sin and suffered the greatest of all sufferings so that we could be called his children. And we remember that someday, as certain as the sun will shine tomorrow, after the moon covers it briefly, (laughs) our king will return. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. No more cancer, no more miscarriages, and no more injustice. Just praising and proclaiming the goodness of our God. Friends, I'll finish with this. One of my most favorite scenes in a movie ever was in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe movie a few years back. In the final battle scene after the Lion Aslan was killed, the battle is turning in favor of the White Witch and the evil she represents. And she's getting really close to defeating Peter. And then the camera pans back and you see the resurrected Aslan crest the top of the hill over the battle. He has defeated death and looks down on the battle and just roars as if to say the gig is up. Suffering Evil and death has had its day, but no more. Friends, the Lion of Judah is coming. And while we wait, the evil one can injure us, but he has lost the war. Our king will return, and until that day, he is with us now and will never forsake us. Let us now come to his table. Amen.